Welcome into another edition of the Five Reasons Podcast. My name is Chris Whittingham, joined as always by Ethan Skolnick. And Ethan, during our radio days, we would have had to wait until 4 o'clock. We'd be reacting to the games last night. We'd be looking ahead a little bit, kind of caught between two minds. But we're actually taping this just as the NBA final day of the season chaos has just ended. The Miami Heat beat the Toronto Raptors. The Orlando Magic beat the Washington Wizards. The Philadelphia 76ers didn't just beat... They destroyed the Milwaukee Bucks, and so that, at the end of all of it, has the Miami Heat as the sixth seed, taking on the Philadelphia Sixers in round one, and today, we are doing a round one preview available for you, whether it's on Thursday or Friday or before the game, Saturday and Sunday, you will get everything you need to know about this matchup in this podcast, but Ethan, before we get to it, how did you experience the chaos, the mayhem of the final day of the regular season? That was completely nuts, and I I think we learned a couple of things, Chris. I I think first thing, uh, Toronto was not afraid of playing Miami in the first round. That was pretty clear because— Seems pretty clear they wanted to play them in the first round. They wanted to play them. Uh, The fact that you go with Lowry and DeRozan so deep into that game— or even have Lowry playing, you know, down in, in clutch time and and make taking and making a lot of those shots. They wanted to play the Heat, which is a little odd if you think about the fact that the first two games against the Heat this year, but clearly they didn't want anything to do with either a Milwaukee team that they might have to deal with Giannis or a Washington team that is more experienced than Miami in these situations and has, at least recently, and has Wall and Beal, uh, provided the Wall's coming back. In fairness to them, it could also be they were sitting at 59-22. and If they win the game, they get 60 wins, and that's a pretty significant achievement. And maybe there are just some coaches that don't care about tanking, don't care about matchups. I'm going to, I have a game in front of me. I'm going to try, I'm going to try and win it. And you saw it with Lowry and DeRozan. Lowry, 38 minutes. DeRozan, 39 minutes. I think Dwayne Casey just wanted to win the game, just like Eric Spolster wanted to win the game. I don't, I, I think Eric Spolster sort of demonstrated, you could say it was a fearlessness about, we don't care that we're playing Philly. We're going to try and win this game in front of us rather than, I think, what a lot of Heat fans were clamoring for in the moment. Once you saw that Orlando was winning and that if you lose the game to the Raptors, you're the seventh seed to play Boston. I certainly was in that camp of, all right, throw Haslam in there, throw Luke Babbitt in there, throw everyone in there that's going to help you lose this game. But Spolster didn't care. I, I don't think, my guess would be that he didn't do a single bit of scoreboard watching. No one on the bench did any scoreboard watching. And they just played a game against the Raptors tonight that they were trying to win. I think they were trying to win it. And the odd thing about this was that the Washington-Orlando game, the way it was playing out, the Heat getting to overtime actually gave them the opportunity to kind of get a sense of what they should do there, right? If they wanted to play Boston, the fact that you could watch what was happening or at least have an idea of what was happening in the other game uh, gave you that chance. But, I mean, there were a couple things that Eric did down the stretch that he wouldn't typically do. You and I were texting during it, and the fact that Wade was not out there, and I know he was not effective tonight, and Ellington was terrific, obviously, but... Look, Eric's going to lean on Dwayne in a game that he really wants to win, regardless of what the circumstances are. We've seen that, even with Dwayne at 36 years old. So I'm not sure the Heat were totally gunning for it, but but Toronto um, clearly wanted to win the game. I will say this. If their reason for wanting to win the game was to draw the Heat, that makes more sense to me than trying to win the game to get to 60. Like I, These milestones, Like I mean, what does that mean, ultimately? It's an even I mean, number, Ethan. That's it's the, an even that's number, but... but but Chris, you know that the Raptors are not going to be judged this year based on whether they get to 60 wins. They're going to be judged on whether they flame out in the first round of the playoffs. But to get to that next point on it, their likelihood of flaming out in the first round of the playoffs actually probably decreased because they're playing a team in Washington that lost a game that was impossible to lose tonight. Like, I don't understand. If you look at the at the Wizards magic box score and look at the guys that the magic were playing, the magic. It's a a riddle. It's a riddle. 
they played all 13 guys, and and now I'm not just talking about they played them all by the end. They had they were they were playing 12 guys throughout this game. The guy who ended up getting the most minutes was Kem Birch. You remember Kem Birch? <laughs> yes, <laughs> he, was, he was a he was a Heat training camp washout, wasn't he? Yes, he was. There was one of those guys that the fans are always, you know, so worried about losing, right? At the very yeah, end. Yeah. Uh, There's guy, always a 15th man that comes from Summer League that Heat fans are desperate to keep. Right, because if they don't keep that guy, the franchise will never be the same. But <laughs> Ken Birch ended up playing like upwards of 30 minutes tonight. The Magic had no interest in winning that game. It did not help them to win that game. No, they were it, trying it, it, it hurt them game. severely. They, they lost two spots, correct? I mean, I, I yeah, think so, in, in so the if they, So if they had lost they would have entered into a three-way tiebreaker for the third-best lottery odds. And there is no tiebreaker. It's just a draw. I don't even know how this draw works. There's just a draw that happens. And so Orlando could have ostensibly ended up with the third-best lottery odds by the end of the night had they lost this game. Right, so they wanted to lose the game. and how did 100%. The Wizards... Right, so I, the Wizards, even without Porter and without Wall, like if you're a reasonably competent basketball team, how do you lose that game to that team, and, and as you and I were communicating during this tonight, like they had actually taken a one-point lead, and I was like, okay, well, that's over. They came for whatever it was, 10 back at the half, and ended up taking the lead, but somehow managed to lose that game, and they just have not played well lately at all. So I know that people are going to look at the Wizards and say, well, you know, they've, they've been to the second round before and had a chance to actually get to Eastern Conference Finals last year, but, I, you know, the, the way that they're playing right now, you would think Toronto would, would be in pretty good shape there. But the other thing that happened tonight, of course, is Philadelphia won again. That's 16 in a row, and they didn't just win, but they— they mutilated uh, the Bucks. What were they up at some point? Like 40? Uh, it was 46-18 after one quarter. It was 68-29 in the second. They got to 80 eventually in the end. In the, in, in the first half, they were up, I think it was 80-47 at the break. But if they had really exerted themselves over kind of like the final five, I think they were at 70 with five minutes to play in the second quarter. Like they were just on another level tonight. And Markel Fultz ended up with a, with a, with a triple-double off the bench and like drew this massive celebration from all his teammates and the fans in the arena. I guess everyone knew that he was on nine rebounds and he went full Westbrook chasing down a rebound to get his 10th and ended up getting the triple double. So even they added someone who I think you could say probably going into the playoffs that they weren't expecting to have nor expecting to contribute. No, and what was Milwaukee's angle tonight exactly? I mean, did they throw that thing to get seven? I, I, I mean, how, I mean how, how do you get beat by that margin? I think we're trying to find angles in places where there might not be any. I think Philadelphia is just really dominant. And if you look at their numbers over the last 16 games, and they've beaten up on some fat on their schedule, but good Lord, have they been impressive over the last 16 games. It's not just that they've won 16. They've beaten the hell out of some teams. And I just think they came out tonight to make sure that there was no shred of doubt that they were getting the three and that Cleveland was going to be the four. Okay, but Cocky Heat fan doesn't care. No, no, and I have been inundated by a Cocky Heat fan tonight, as no. I normally am. I, I And I, I always do this to myself, and I get mad at myself because – I am from Miami. I grew up a Heat fan. The first Heat team I was a fan of was those garbage teams in the two th- in the early 2000s, in kind of the post-Zo era. I used to get mad at Mark Blunt all the time. Like I'm a, I'm not you know, you know call myself a life or anything, but I was there during some pretty dark times, right? And yet I always, because of my realism, I always end up getting on the negative side of of the fans and on Twitter. That happened when we were doing radio in 2016. I got all kinds of crap from all different directions. And I'm getting it right now because I think, spoiler alert, 
I think this is going to be a pretty quick exit for Miami as, as we start to look ahead to the series. Okay, but I put up a poll, Chris, right as the Heat game was ending, and it was pretty clear that the Sixers and the Heat were going to match up here in the first round, process versus culture, which is what we're going to cover on this pod. So I put up four different options, okay? Heat in six or seven, Heat in four or five, Sixers in six or seven, or Sixers in four or five. It already has, as we're speaking now, it's been up for about 15 minutes. It has about 800 votes. So you can you can find it for still be up there by the time that this posts in the morning. So go to at five reasons. That's five, the number five, five reasons sports. All right. Take a guess right now, Chris, at uh, where people have this. Just just heat or sixers. You don't have to break down the six or seven, five or uh, four or five in terms of games. Yeah, I'm going to go ahead and say that, you know, Heat fans understanding that Philadelphia is this rampant team over the final stretch of the season. They've got two superstar players that are rounding into form, even if Embiid is coming off an injury. I'm going to go ahead and say, even even understanding that there's an optimism amongst being a fan, I'd say maybe a 50-50 split. Right now it's 69% <laughs> for the Heat. 30, 31% for the Sixers. Yeah. Um, and that breaks down 58% of the total 100% say Heat in six or seven. So people are, are basically saying, and only 12% say Sixers in four or five, where will you have it, I would think, as we get into this pod. So people are, are just assuming that the Heat are going to push this one close to the distance or to the distance, and then somehow end up winning, I guess, a game seven in Philadelphia, or potentially closing it out in a game six here in Miami. So people think this is going to be a long series, but the Heat are going to pull out this series. And we're going to get into some of the reasons that maybe we think so or don't think so here on the pod. But I've got to assume, uh, other than it just being cocky, optimistic Heat fan, that what people are probably banking on is that the Sixers have not, this group has not been there before, and they're looking past the 16-game winning streak, even though, again, you're going to be adding Embiid back here at some point during the series, and he hasn't been a part of, of a good portion of this winning streak, and he is arguably their best player. Now, Ben Simmons has been unbelievable over the past couple months, but Embiid was sort of leading things in the first half of the year. So, look, I respect the fact that Heat fans look at it, but I would have expected those numbers maybe if the Heat were playing the Celtics, considering the decimated state of the Celtics right now, but for, for most Heat fans to think the Heat are going to win this series, probably looking a bit on the optimistic side there. And, and I think the other thing too, Ethan, is that the Heat have had some matchups against Philadelphia that have been pretty close, and probably the most memorable game of the season was the game that Wade won pretty soon after coming back. So I can't necessarily blame the Heat fans for that sort of being their only experience with the Sixers this season. The thing to me, and I was sold on Friday because I was at a bar, and it was the night the Heat lost to the Knicks. And I was watching the Sixers-Cavs game because it had seating implications because if the Sixers won, then it was likely that Miami would play Philadelphia because they were sitting at six at the time. And if Cleveland had won that game, we'd be talking about a Heat-Cavs matchup and we're probably mad at Cleveland for not winning that game. But the reason why I was so impressed, because so, so Philly goes up big early in that game, but Cleveland comes all the way back and they're level with you know five minutes to play. And they just went haymaker for haymaker, and we saw Toronto crumple under that. We saw Washington crumple under that in the last few weeks playing games against Cleveland. Philly went toe-to-toe, and they felt like they belonged, and their crowd was behind them. And I just think that this is the payoff for what they did, and they're going to enjoy the hell out of this. And I just think they're playing such incredible basketball right now. 
I'm not even kidding, Ethan. I think this might be a finals team. And I know this is probably exaggerating to a month of the season. And, you know, the history tells us not to overreact to teams that are playing well at the end of the season because based off the metrics, first 10 games results correlate as much to playoff success as last 10 games results. But given the wide open nature of the Eastern Conference, the way that Philly is playing right now, I wouldn't put it past them to get on a real run here and win a couple of rounds and maybe end up in a conference finals. And who the hell knows once you get there? Because you look at the East and you say, who else do you trust, right? Yeah. I mean, if there was another team that you trusted, you may not feel that way about a team that is just coming into its own now. But again, look at the rest of the Eastern Conference uh, before we get into this matchup specifically. But of course, you trust LeBron, no question. Do you trust his help this year? Not so sure. He, he doesn't have, I mean, you can talk about Kevin Love, but he doesn't have a takeover scorer alongside him like he has had for basically now, you know, and we could talk about the state that Dwayne was in by the end of that thing with the Heat, but he's basically had that now for the past seven years. And he doesn't have that because he doesn't have a, a Kyrie or a Dwayne to take over parts of the game if he's just not feeling it on that particular night. So even as well as he's played this season, I, you know, I don't think you just write them into the finals this time. Although if you, if you sort of put a gun in my head on it, I'd probably pick them. Uh, Toronto, we talk about maybe not completely trusting them, even with the bench playing so well this year and then playing a different style. Uh, Boston, I mean, write them off at this stage, at least as a finals team without Kyrie. And then, you know, Washington, which looked like a team that, you know, maybe might challenge for finals at some point, but they've taken steps back this year. And as we said, they're going to open with Toronto. It's not a great place for them to be. Giannis's team, Giannis may be ready. His team is not ready. So uh, when you start to eliminate everybody else, you say, yeah, Philadelphia can harness what it's done here over the past, you know, what are we at now? It's more than a month of the season that they've been playing at this kind of level. Then they certainly are scary, you know, for anybody. And they're not in Cleveland's bracket either, right? Because they're in the three spot. So they're in Boston's bracket, provided that Boston even gets past Milwaukee. So we're going to get more in depth to the Philadelphia Miami series. I, again, I, I think as we start this, that I'm going to say this is going to be closer than maybe you think it's going to be because mm -hmm. I do think Philly still has some flaws. But let's go through it a little bit. Okay. So we wanted to go through five points of interest in this series that we think will end up being the major talking points throughout. So we have to start with the broadest organizational level of these two teams. So the Philadelphia 76ers have not won more than 30 games in a season for the last four years. So it all began when Sam Hankey took over as general manager of the team, and they began what ended up becoming known as the process, which was they uh, he inherited the team after they traded for Andrew Bynum, and they'd given up a, a couple of first-round picks. They lost Andre Iguodala. They were a team that was trying to get to the playoffs but just couldn't. And so Sam Hinkie takes over, takes a look at the landscape, and says, you know what? The best way for me to get better is to acquire superstar talent. And the way that he goes about doing that is basically stripping the team for parts, making a bunch of trades, flipping picks, taking a first-round pick, trading him for something else. Asset acquisition is what he set out to do. And he ended up with tons of first-round picks and trading a bunch of guys and basically trying to do, in some respects, what the Heat have done in finding guys that can end up becoming role contributors for the team when they eventually get good. So they found Robert Covington this way, Rashawn Holmes, TJ McConnell. The Heat have actually done it better while also winning with Whiteside and Tyler Johnson. Even, to me, Josh Richardson counts as a second-round pick. So he goes about this asset acquisition and there were some failures along the way. Michael Carter-Williams, Nerlens Noel, Jaleel Okafor, all no longer with the team. And those are all lottery picks. But 
they do get Joel Embiid and Ben Simmons. And that right now is the difference for me between these two teams. I think both these teams have a pretty significant amount of depth. When you look at the roster, they, they both go 10 deep. They both have you know, quality rosters. But the difference for me right now between these two teams is Ben Simmons and Joel Embiid. And they don't get Joel, B- Joel Embiid and Ben Simmons unless they try to be bad for a period of four years. Now, I don't think it was always going to be four years because there were injuries Along the way, Joel Embiid missed two seasons and then only played 30 games of his third. Ben Simmons missed a full season in his rookie year and thus is only playing his rookie year this year. So I don't think it was meant to be four seasons of losing, but that's where it ended up being. And Sam Hinkie and the Philadelphia 76ers took on a strategy of losing to win. And this year is the first year that that has borne fruit and that it has actually worked. And they're a playoff team that won 52 games this season. And now you're staring down the barrel of a, of a Philadelphia team being better than a Miami team. That is the exact opposite. So, Ethan, when you look at it at the broadest possible level, what these organizations stand for, it kind of makes for a really interesting narrative arc of this series. Yeah, the whole process versus culture thing. And the Heat just don't believe in anything that the Sixers believed in during the Sam Hinkie era. And not everything they did along the way was perfect, but the overall strategy has been validated by Simmons and Embiid, even with both guys missing time for injury. And even, we should get to this too, even with Fultz's situation this year, and and he may end up being the X factor in this series, but clearly that's a pick that's going to be scrutinized for a long time. Not a pick that Hinky made, a pick that Colangelo made, but still one that, that's going to be looked at and for Philadelphia. And a trade too, because they, they give and, a pretty a prime asset. They gave up a first-round pick to be able to move up and to take him, and now you're looking at a draft that has, at the very least, and again, no one was saying this at the time, that you take Donovan Mitchell first, but at the moment, it looks like Donovan Mitchell is the most promising player in this draft, and then there's some other guys like Tatum and right on down the line who, who may end up being better than Fultz. We'll see. But So they haven't done everything perfectly, but they gave themselves enough shots to do it. Now, on the other side of this, you have culture. Now, culture is what you sort of call something when you don't have stars, right? And we've talked about <laughs> this on the pod. Yes. And, and that's not a shot at the Heat because uh, the Heater tried to make the best of their si- particular situation, which is that they did go after stars the past two off seasons. They had a long shot bid at Durant. Then this past off season, they go after Gordon Hayward, who is not a Durant quality star, but still the type of player that the Heat organization would have valued. He would have fit in from their quote-unquote culture standpoint, and he would have given you a lead player. He likely would have been, had he been signed with the Heat and been healthy, the best player on the team. So they did make a run at stars, but they haven't been able to get stars lately. So what do you do when you can't get stars? Well, what you do is you coach guys up, right? And, And you try to get the most that you possibly can out of your roster, and you call it culture. And that's what we've seen is this transition from kind of a Pat Riley vision of the organization, which is always to get the biggest star. It's not to sign James Johnson to four years. That's not the way that Riley typically right. operates. It's to get the biggest star that you possibly can. And it's what he's done repeatedly in Miami, whether it's been in free agency or more more frequently in trades for Sh- for Shaq, for Zoe, for Tim, for Mashburn, okay? That's the, for Dragic. That's the way that Pat has typically operated. But they have not been in position to get that kind of player in his prime right now. So what they've basically done is transition to more of a Spolster organization where Eric has put together a more of a developmental coaching staff, the kind of coaching staff that he's comfortable with, and they've tried to get the most out of guys that they possibly can. The problem that the Heat have had 
is that two of those guys in Whiteside and Tyler Johnson went from, and we've talked about this on the pod, really, really nice stories who were outperforming their contracts to guys who are now overpaid. And so that makes well, it not, even not harder. Not yet for Tyler Johnson. He will be next year, though. He will be next year, <laughs> right. You're looking at the contract going forward. So that creates another problem where it's harder and harder to get a star. So I know that Pat's inclination is never to break the thing down to the bottom. Um, they did it in 2007, 2008, but it really wasn't by choice, Chris. If you look back at that season, Jack really didn't want to play anymore, and so they ended up trading him, and we know sort of what happened. Sean Marion and then Jermaine O'Neal, and then the whole thing just, like, totally collapsed and so you end up breaking it down to 15 wins and you only end up with Michael Beasley and I think looking back at it that only cemented Riley's philosophy about tanking because I mean they did tank the second half of that season I mean Pat even stopped coaching the team right if you remember (laughs) that's right Rossi took over we didn't ask you about that on our podcast well, I know I skipped over it, and we are going to post that podcast we did with Ron here pretty soon. We did a really great Heat Stories episode, so that'll that'll be up shortly. But they did tank that year, the second half of that season, and they ended up with 15 wins, and they ended up not getting Derrick Rose anyway and not taking Westbrook. Again, revisionist history. That, that should have been the pick. And so they ended up with Beasley, and we saw where that led. So, uh, look, Pat was never going to be convinced to break the thing down, particularly not when he's – you know, in his 70s now and looking for one more run of the championship, there was never going to be the patience from him or the organization or, frankly, Chris, the Heat fan to wait it out like Philadelphia waited it out. Like, I know Philadelphia is a tough sports town, but I think the fans there were sort of okay with it from what I gathered because, well, I, again— I think, I think it ended up becoming a cult in the end. It ended up yes. becoming like, oh, we're, we're so down for this. This is going to work. The whole league hates us. We're in a front to basketball. We're going we're gonna to embrace the fact that we're in a front to basketball. Now, nobody went to games, right? Let's not get it twisted. Their attendance was really poor during these years. But I think from like a culture of the fans' point of view and what they were embracing, I think the intelligent, the smart Sixers fans were like, all right, let's, we're, we're, we're going to embrace this. This is our strategy, and trust the process was born. Yes, and it was born after, if you remember, and this is the first time that the Heat are playing the Sixers in the playoffs since, I guess it would be 2011, right? It was that first year of the Big Three that the Heat played. The first playoff series of the Big Three was against the Sixers, against Doug Collins' team. And that team maxed out, that Philly team. They had Iguodala, they had Thad Young, they had Lou Williams. I mean, solid players, right, who've gone on to be key factors on other teams but we're not lead I mean Iguodala was their lead guy and Iguodala is not a lead guy like he's a he's really good if he's the fourth or fifth best player perfect for what the Warriors want him for (laughs) right right exactly but he's he's not a guy you go to down the stretch of games and that's what they were trying to do with him with Lou Williams with Thad Young and then even with as I mentioned earlier Drew Holiday so uh, that team kind of hit its ceiling and that's where the process Began. Now, what's interesting to me is that this Heat team, in some ways, reminds me of that Sixers team, that team that was kind of 43 to 45 wins. Like, that's about what their ceiling was. And they ran up against, and I'm not saying that the Simmons Embiid Sixers at this stage are the, you know, LeBron, Wade, Bosch Heat team, but they ran up against a team with stars. And the Heat ended up dropping a game in that series in 2011 because they basically lost interest in game four, but then they closed it out in game five. So, look, I, again, I, I'm not saying that this Sixer team is at the level of that Heat team. Clearly, they're not as established, but it is interesting to me that the roles have reversed a little bit in that sense 
where, as you said, the Sixers have the stars, the Heat don't. And it's going to be about sort of can the Heat get a collective effort from enough guys and do Embiid and Simmons wilt a little bit under the pressure of their first playoff series? Yeah, I think that'll end up becoming a major talking point is the lack of experience that the Sixers have. Well, actually, we're actually going to cover that coming up next year. But I just wanted to mention, you mentioned kind of that inflection point, that tanking point in 2007-8, and, and the Heat ended up following that to the second pick in Michael Beasley. The other thing that you kind of end up remembering is that the Heat, from an organizational point of view, established their bona fides in this area one year ago, when they were 11-30 and 30 at the midway point in the season, and they decided they weren't going to pack it in. I was advocating that they should pack it in. I think a lot of Heat fans were kind of in the same place. They kind of saw what the Sixers were doing and saying, you know what? We have our first-round pick this year. We don't have it twice in the next few years. This is our chance to find this player. And who knows if the Heat had gone down that path. Maybe, you know, Riley's lack of trust in this area is proved again by maybe the, the Heat took faults and it was a similar calamity as, as it was in Philly. Or maybe they take Jason Tatum and they have a really promising young player. But I do think that the difference between the two teams was also very recently established in that the Heat weren't even trying to tank ahead of the season. And... They got to a point where they could, and I don't think anyone would have blamed them for it, and they didn't. And they ended up almost making the playoffs going 41-41, and 41, and I think that established who they are as an organization. And if anything, it kind of galvanized the fan base where that always kind of hated what Philly was doing, and now I think hates it even more given that this kind of they put the cult in culture with the way that they're supporting the Heat. So I, I do think that this kind of dichotomy has been sort of reinforced even more within the last 12 months. Within the last I, 18 months. And I think part of it is a pride thing with Riley in this front office in a couple of different ways. This team could have tried to tank after 2014 when LeBron left. I mean, they could have taken the organization that direction. And instead, mm -hmm. and I know they signed Granger and McRoberts before LeBron, and it was part of the reason LeBron left. He wasn't real thrilled with what they were doing in the offseason to supplement the roster. But they could have gone the other direction at that time. They decided to, I mean, look at the Bosch contract, right? Yeah, like, what, look, look what they maxed him out. They decided to go for it, to pay him, which ended up having a ripple effect because Dwayne was unhappy about it. Even though he, he was tight with Chris, he was unhappy about the way that they went about paying Chris when they, you know, they weren't planning to pay Dwayne. So you know, th they decided to go for it and to try to sort of make a run in the East. And ultimately, you know, the second year without LeBron did a little bit in 15-16 and got to a Game 7 against Toronto in the second round. And then Dwayne leaves. And they could have gone that direction again. They could have tanked. And instead, uh, you know, they put this roster together and it ends up working out better than they anticipated in the second half of the season. I mean, they could have tanked in terms of the moves that they made after Dwayne left beyond even just starting 11 and 30 mm -hmm. in the season. I didn't do that. And I think part of it is pride. It was this idea that, uh, you know, LeBron we're not just going to break us. LeBron's not going to break us, and then Dwayne's not going to break us yeah. uh, when he left, and, and that's and then Chris's situation is not going to break us. And I mean, this is this is a consistent pattern with this organization. I mean, they took great pride in the fact that Cleveland, you know, fell apart when LeBron left in 2010, and they did not fall apart to a similar degree in 2014 when LeBron left. I mean, it's part of what they bank on. But again, and we've talked about this on many pods, they're now in a situation where yeah. they're trying to win through the middle, and that is not that easy. And then the Dragic trade, too, because if you kind of look at what would Sam Hinkie do, I think that it's kind of the opposite of what would Pat Riley do. He's definitely not giving up two unprotected or two, you know, loosely protected first-round picks for Goran Dragic for, for sure. 
sure he's not making that trade, and he would have taken this team in, into the place where Heat fans don't want to be. All right, so now let's really sink in. Let's sink our teeth in the matchup into our second point, and this is where we get into the lack of experience, particularly amongst the stars for the Philadelphia 76ers. Joel Embiid in just his second season, and really when you look at it from a game's played point of view, over the course of his first two years of his career, has, or it's actually now ended up, this, we're in his fourth year now, 92 games, 94 games, excuse me, over the course of his career. So still a very inexperienced player, never been in the playoffs, and you look at the same thing with Ben Simmons in effectively his rookie season after missing his first year in the league due to injury. And then you, you look at the rest of the roster. Robert Covington's never been here before. Dario Saric, Rashawn Holmes, Markel Fultz, Ursan Ilyasova doesn't have a ton of playoff experience. It's really down to Marco Bellinelli and J.J. Redick. J.J. Redick, who was kind of their big money signing in the offseason, and Marco Bellinelli, one of the best midseason additions we've seen in the league for some time for this Philly team. So not a ton of experience. I guess my question, though, Ethan, is do the Heat really, outside of Dwayne Wade, have a ton of playoff experience? They don't. And Again, let's let's look at the starting lineup here a little bit. Uh, Goran Dragic has some, but not a ton, right? Because, I mean, if you go back to his time in Phoenix and in Houston, the one moment that he had was that incredible quarter he had against the Spurs, right? That was sort of his coming out party. I mean, you got to go back a few years for that. But then he didn't play in the playoffs for years. And then he ends up playing in the playoffs in 2016, And, you know, we saw him have some shaky moments in the Charlotte series against Kemba. And then he had some some good games against Toronto. But he does not have a ton of playoff experience. Now, of course, Goran has a ton of international experience, big game international experience. And I mean, there's nothing more pressurized than being the face of your country. Yeah. And and he did pretty well uh, in the European championships. Yeah. yeah. I was just going to say won the European championships this offseason with Slovenia, which was considered a pretty sizable upset. A big upset. And so I, I think he'll be fine from, you know, a jitters standpoint. He's, he's going to be OK. And and we've talked about this a little bit when we were breaking this down on a previous pod. Philadelphia does not have I mean, Fultz's quickness could be an issue, but Philadelphia does not have a point guard like Kemba Walker or Kyle Lowry that Dragic has had to, had to deal with in his last postseason with Miami in 2016. So I think and, he'll, and it's probably he'll more be likely fine. that he'll end up defending JJ Redick in the series than he will be Ben Simmons. Right? He's not he's not going to be defending no. their starting point guard. No, uh, you're gonna you're gonna see Josh Richardson, James Johnson, and Justice Winslow on Ben Simmons for the most part. And we'll touch on that here a little bit later as well. But I, as far as you know, the rest of their playoff experience, I mean, Whiteside got a taste of it two years ago, but then he got hurt. You know, he handled, and we're going to get into him in more depth. I mean, he handled some of it okay. He was complaining about the officiating a lot during the Charlotte series. I thought that got in his head a little bit. That certainly didn't help. He was complaining about them flopping and, and all that sort of stuff. So, and, and I know that, you know, we're going to touch on him more, but clearly where he is in terms of his head's at in a matchup against Embiid is going to be critical for them. But look, Winslow doesn't have a lot. Richardson doesn't have a lot. They, play, they both played in the 2016 playoffs. Neither of them played particularly well. I mean, Justice was kind of put in a, almost an impossible position where he had to play center at the end of that Toronto series. Richardson was playing with a bad shoulder during the playoffs. I don't know if that was really representative of what he can do. And he's, he's a better player now than he was then. But, you know, one guy who has a little bit is Olenek. He's yeah. played, he played in the playoffs with Boston. And you remember the game seven that he had last year where he was their go-to player for them. So I, I think, you know, again, I think he'll be fine. But and also, see- also has experience taking out uh, <laughs> opposing teams' important players. He does. Did that with Kevin Love. So uh, we haven't <laughs> seen any of that from him. This show is sponsored by BetterHelp. 
What's the first thing you do if you had an extra hour in your day? Go for a run, take a nap, maybe check the stats of the latest Miami Heat game? I've got a better idea. A lot of us spend our lives wishing we had more time. The question is time for what? If time was unlimited, how would you use it? The best way to squeeze that special thing into your schedule is to know what's important to you and make it a priority. Therapy can help you find what matters to you so you can do more of it. I've benefited from therapy. I went through some life changes, major life events, had some difficulties, wasn't a believer in therapy, but it helped me and it can help you also. So if you're thinking of starting therapy, give BetterHelp a try. It's entirely online, designed to be convenient, flexible, and suited to your schedule. Just fill out a brief questionnaire to get matched with a licensed therapist and switch therapists anytime for no additional charge. So learn to make time for what makes you happy with BetterHelp. Visit betterhelp.com slash Miami Heat today to get 10% off your first month. Again, that's betterhelp, H-E-L-P.com slash Miami Heat. After the end of a good fight, you deserve an ice cold reward. Medela is the mark of a fighter. You've earned this rich golden lager with a crisp, refreshing taste. Because you know, the bigger the fight, the better the reward. You put in the hours, the energy, the tough labor. You are a fighter. Medela is your reward. Medela, the mark of a fighter. Drink responsibly. Beer imported by Crown Port, Chicago, Illinois. This year, but no, the Heat don't have, uh, other than Dwayne, don't have a ton of it. So I, I don't know if that's going to be a huge edge for them in this series. I, I think one of the things we're going to touch on here is that Spolster has a lot of different options he can go to if certain guys are shaky or not playing well. We know that role players typically play better at home than on the road. The Heat play a lot better at home than on the road, and and we're going to see how some of their role players handle Philadelphia, which, you know, again, we talk about some of the crowds they've had in recent years. The crowds recently are into it. And that building can get uh, from being there many times, that building can get very loud if the fans have something to cheer for. And you can really argue that since Iverson retired, and I, I'd even go back to Iverson's first stint with Philly because the second stint, he was a shell of himself. They really haven't had a lot to cheer in Philadelphia. It's not just the bad years, but the hinky years, but also the before that, years. the mediocre years where that team, you know, you, that was a team that with, like I said, with Iguodala, that group that you just knew was not going to an NBA finals. This team they feel something building there. That's a city that just experienced a Super Bowl. They're going to be into it. So that's and a be national a tough championship, by the way, in college basketball with Villanova. Villanova. Exactly. But the other thing too that you have to consider in kind of that sort of uh, intangible aspect is that this team is a year ahead of schedule. I don't think there was. A, I mean, a Sixers fan this year was probably saying, "All right." We have Simmons now. He's ready to go. We just drafted Fultz. I'm saying ahead of the season. We just drafted Fultz, and Beat will be back. Hopefully, he'll be healthy, and we can make the playoffs this year. I think their their over under in Las Vegas was 42 and a half ahead of the season, and they outpaced it by 10 wins. I don't think I don't think you can kind of underestimate just how giant it is that they're this far ahead of schedule, and that they feel like holy crap, we're, we we might actually have arrived. And I think that that building sense of anticipation is seeing this come to fruition and coming to fruition quickly and seeing these promising guys that have sort of developed in front of their eyes and finally this this whole plan coming together so I do think that becomes a factor but just sort of very quickly here Ethan in your experience going back to sort of the the rookies that have or the young players that have done well in the playoffs you look at Wade Wade is a prime example of going from second round 
to then conference finals, to then finals in years one, two, and three of his career. But to me, the reason why this is difficult to really put a finger on is normally you'd say, well, young teams take a while. They kind of have to do some suffering. They have to lose before they really gain the experience of knowing what playoff basketball is like. Here's the problem, though, is that teams that generally are young were more recently bad, like the Sixers. Last year, they only won 28 games. They were recently bad, and so that next step is to being a a team that just makes the playoffs. You rarely see a team that makes a 24-game leap in victories season over season and where you would actually consider them to be a favorite. The Sixers are going to be a favorite in this series, and so this is kind of some uncharted territory in terms of Young players leading a favorite in the playoffs. I think there really aren't a lot of comps for how a team this young with this kind of position in the playoffs is going to fare. Yeah, I can't think of a real recent example. I mean, when you look at even like a Golden State, for instance, uh, they had a couple of turns in the playoffs with Curry, et cetera, before they became the juggernaut that they've since become. And so, again, to look at a team that enters the playoffs this young and this hot, where they're going to be a dark horse for a lot of people, as you you even talk about, to get to the finals, we just haven't seen that. And it's also a strange situation because they've been playing this well without arguably their best player Mm. for a period of time. And now they've got to sort of, and I don't think it'll be that difficult, but they've got to integrate him back back on the fly here. Yeah, there aren't a ton of examples of this, and they've just had a lot of moving parts this year. We talk about Fultz coming back at the stage of the season he came back. You know, we're going to talk a little bit more about depth, but the Bellinelli and Ilyasova signings were huge for them, just in terms of fleshing out their bench and the way that both have played. And Bellinelli in particular has been unbelievable against the Heat. We're going to get into some of these numbers of how the Sixers players have fared against the Heat this year, but Bellinelli has been a really difficult matchup for them. So they have a very deep roster now, but you're right. It's still the faces of the franchise are Simmons and Embiid. In a lot of ways, the pressure is going to fall on them and the matchups in terms of the, you know what Spolscher wants to dictate are going to be based on those two guys and you have to see how both handle it. Now, neither guy seems particularly phased by anything this year. Um, and fun. They're having fun, and Simmons is in a situation. I mean, Simmons, look, I mean, this this thing with Donovan Mitchell and, and the Rookie of the Year, I mean, uh, Simmons does not lack for confidence. That's pretty clear. I mean, where, where he said no other rookie in the league impressed him at this point this season. And also, one of the other subtle storylines that he was outraged when Goran Dragic was picked to go to the All-Star game ahead of him. Right. Yeah, he's he wasn't real happy about that. And, we, you know, what was Goran? He was the third replacement, right? Yeah. So, so there were... So actually, you know, they didn't have Simmons as one of the top 14 in the Eastern Conference. He's got a little bit of a chip on his shoulder there. So there is experience with Redick. Um, You know, he's been in a lot of playoff games with the Clippers. Those teams never got quite as far as they were supposed to get. Actually, was I I think Redick was in the NBA Finals, right, with 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 Orlando, Orlando, yeah. If you go way back. But yeah, not a ton of experience on either side. I mean, it really, again, comes down to Dwayne as far as having the most experience. And we saw him have the huge game against Philadelphia after his return to Miami, the 27 points and the, and the late shot. But we've also seen Dwayne not play particularly well here over the past three weeks. So we, we aren't exactly sure what his minutes are going to look like in this series either. And also from a kind of a, a bit more subtle perspective, this is also Brett Brown's first playoff series as well. Obviously, was a, was assistant for Popovich for a long time, so he's been involved in, in playoff series. But this is also his first go around as as a playoff coach, so that that also can't really be ignored either. 
All right, so let's go ahead and move on to the third thing we want to get to, and that is what is probably the best player-v-player narrative story of of this series, and that is Hassan Whiteside against Joel Embiid. Now, Hassan Whiteside has had other media stories that have distracted from his season, and the story of his season has not generally been a positive one. Seeing his minutes go down significantly, seeing himself lose minutes at the end of games, and you go back to October is from uh, For the Win. It says, During the game, Embiid had Whiteside laughing with his trash talk. Then after the game, Embiid talked even more trash. It was incredibly entertaining. Embiid mostly with Twitter and Whiteside mostly with Snapchat. Embiid responds with, Dude, they had to take your ass out or you would have fouled out in five minutes. And we're talking about preseason, not regular season. Hashtag softy. Joel Embiid then follows it up with, And keep caring about stats and not your team's success. Your plus minus was ass. <laughs> at Young Whiteside, hashtag softy. And then this is the brilliant bit, is he fires off a burn at Kevin Durant when he responds, my bad, y'all, I thought I was using my burner account. Hashtag the process. <laughs> uh, so, and then Whiteside responded with, 31 games in three years. Hopefully I get to see you in the regular season. Hashtag solar eclipse. Hashtag Embiid eclipse. This was a really fun narrative arc for the, for the start of the season. And every time they've played, both guys have been up for it, including Whiteside, you can even argue... Got the better of a few of the matchups. Yeah, he did. And, and look, Embiid played f- three times against the Heat this year. Whiteside played in all four games, I believe. And if you look at their numbers, their respective numbers in those games, I mean, Whiteside played well. I mean, he averaged 15 points a game, shot 60% from the floor, nine and a half rebounds, and 2.8 blocks. Um, so he played well in those games. And look, the, the biggest thing here for me about this matchup is there shouldn't be any question about whether Hassan's going to be up for it, right? Because, I mean, A, it's the playoffs, and B, it's someone that he has an issue with. So for those two reasons, there shouldn't be this sort of lack of focus that we see from Hassan at times. The the problem will be if Embiid gets under his skin too much and, and how Hassan reacts to that. And you know, again, we as we record this, we don't know exactly when Embiid is going to come back. So that plays a factor here too, and how rusty he might be when he first comes back. But if you look at Embiid's numbers against the Heat this year, he's averaged 19 points, 8.7 rebounds, 3.7 assists, and one block. So it's been pretty close to it. I mean, you know, one guy's got the better of one game, one for Whiteside in particular. You know, I thought Embiid outplayed him in at least one of the other games. So uh, this is going to be a matchup that we're going to watch. But the, the difference here between these two guys is that if Embiid is not so rusty and if he's, you know, healthy enough and the mask is fine, and all the rest, you know he's going to play in the fourth quarter, right? Like, there's no question about that. There's still a question of whether or not Spolster is going to play Hassan big fourth quarter minutes. And you would think he would, again, to, to compete against Embiid, but I could see certain situations where he wants space and he goes to Olenek. And I could even see some situations, and we saw it tonight in this game against Toronto, and I know this was a little bit of a weird game, but how well Adebayo played down the stretch of the game tonight that maybe Bam gets some turns even late in games in this series. So I think, look, if Whiteside can play Embiid, it's even close to a, a standoff here. That's a huge win for the Heat, but he's got to stay focused. He's got to stay engaged, and it's got to be about more than just the numbers. I mean, he has to chase and beat out to the three-point line where it's necessary. If he gets doubled at all, and that hasn't happened a whole lot lately, as we talked to Ira about on the pod, he's got to get the ball out quickly and allow the Heat's offense to stay away from getting bogged down. So th- these are key factors for Whiteside. But if you can play him to relatively close to you know, a standoff, I mean, the Heat would be in very good shape. 
To me, the thing that makes this matchup tough in the abstract, and again, I give Whiteside huge credit for playing him pretty well. To me, the part where it gets difficult for Whiteside, and it hasn't really manifested a ton in their games, is Embiid has no problem shooting from three. And you look at this season, took two hundred, you know, more than 200 attempts from three over the 60 games that he played, shot it at 31%, so respectable enough that you have to at least somewhat defend it. And... If Whiteside is going to be defending Embiid 25 feet from the basket, that's not where Whiteside's comfortable. And Embiid, when he's defending Whiteside, is going to be able to park himself near the paint where he is going to be, you know, I think if he had played more games, might have been the favorite for defensive player of the year. And he was an incredible defender when he was in the game. He is an incredible rim-protecting big and is a really good defender because of his mobility and his athleticism. So I think the Heat, in the abstract, don't win that matchup. But that's not how it's played out in, in real basketball terms. And that's sort of the beauty of needing to watch the games. Because if I said to you, here are these character traits you know, uh, going up against each other, I think MB would have this matchup well won. But that's not how the games have gone. So I'm really, it's one of the things that when I'm watching a game beyond just kind of you know, watching to figure out what's going to happen, I think Whiteside v. Embiid will be the bit that I'm most fascinated by. Well, and the playoffs always magnify these things, right? Because mm-hmm. every every individual matchup is watched so closely, and particularly when you have two guys with the personalities that these two guys have, and Embiid, who is so good at getting other players under players' skin with the talking on the court, and then also the social media stuff. And I don't know how active he'll be on social media during a series. I don't know if he's going to go, what was it, zero dark 30 that LeBron always goes, right? Or <laughs> zero dark 23 or zero dark six, whatever it is he called it, depending on his jersey number. I'm not sure if Embiid's going to do that. So there might be some chirping between the games to try to sort of get Hassan off his game a little bit. But if Spolster could go to Whiteside in the fourth quarters of these games, I think he'd prefer to do that. Because again, you know, you want somebody who can handle Embiid inside, but that's going to be up to Hassan. I mean, how committed is he to the things that they need him to do over the course of a game? How focused is he? And this is a real opportunity for Hassan because he can change the narrative of this whole season because nobody's going to care that his minutes went down seven minutes a game in the regular season if he plays big in a series against Joel Embiid. I mean, that's going to get forgotten. And we've talked about his numbers ad nauseum, but on a per minute basis, he's basically been the same player statistically that he was the previous two years. It's just that his minutes have been cut. So if Spolster feels that he needs to increase his minutes and Whiteside can be productive in this series against this kind of player who may be one of the faces of the league going forward, not just someone you know who's leading Philadelphia, but somebody who may be one of the top three or four players in the game within the next couple of years, that would be a huge win for Whiteside. And I do think it would change the narrative of him around the league, but also I think with a lot of Heat fans who are skeptical about what he might provide in this series. All right, so let's go and move on to the fourth point. And we mentioned the coaching in passing earlier. I kind of want to get into it from Spolster's point of view because one of the things that I love about playoff basketball is the way that teams can employ drastic tactics, extreme tactics that they would never do in a regular season game that because it's the playoffs, you can kind of throw everything that you have built over the course of the season out the window. It's one of the things that makes playoff baseball fascinating. Once you start bringing starting pitchers in relief, once you start taking starting pitchers after two and a third innings because they're not playing well and we have to win this game. And NBA teams have really started to do that. I always mention the same example, which is, you know, basically Steve Kerr eliminating Tony Allen from the NBA because he dared him to shoot and it worked. Now, 
this is a really fascinating one to me with Ben Simmons. So you look at Ben Simmons' numbers for the season, and he is very much the playmaker. He is the fulcrum of the Sixers offense. He's been brilliant on both ends of the floor, but there's one problem with Ben Simmons. Outside of 10 feet, he shoots 33% from the field. From three-point range, he is 0 for 11 on the season. He has yet to make a three despite attempting it 11 times. Doesn't even dare try it. So he's a perimeter-based player who is a playmaker who is really efficient, 57.5% from the field, and doesn't shoot really jump shots that much. You look at his numbers, he does his damage within 10 feet of the basket, 64.6% from the field within 10 feet, and that is where he's going to make his living from a scoring point of view. Now, here's the problem. If you try the extreme tactic of giving him space, right, of just, all right, I'm going to give you five feet, and if you want to shoot the jumper, go ahead. The problem is is that when you give playmakers space like that, you give them a running start towards whatever it is they're going to do, whether it's trying to score near the rim or trying to find a pass for somebody else. They'll just start probing. And even if you know they're being asked to go inside, it's not necessarily the best tactic to give them that space. So I'm curious, Ethan, how Eric Spolster handles Ben Simmons from that point of view. How does he dare him to shoot? without necessarily compromising his defense. And that, for me, is one of the things that, in a playoff series, you really see start to get magnified. And the thing for Spolstra is that his inclination is to be aggressive defensively, not to have guys back off. I mean, that, that's that been one of the consistent things about a Spolstra defense. And they've, they've adjusted it over time to fit their personnel. But look, this is a team that for years didn't believe in in switching on pick and rolls, right? You lock and trail. You stay with your man. Like that's – they play aggressive defense. That You go back to the 2014 finals. That was the big issue that a lot of Heat players had was that they didn't feel the, the defense changed when all that blitzing was not working against a San Antonio team that was moving the ball like no other team. Milwaukee tried the same defensive tactic this year and basically got Jason Kidd fired. No, but the, the Heat typically – and again, they've adjusted a little bit this year – but they are going to play aggressively more often than not. So the, the question becomes, who do you start on Ben Simmons and how do you approach him over the course of the game? Now, let's just look at Philadelphia's starting lineup if we're going to assume that Embiid is going to be back. So if you're going to have Embiid back and if Redick is going to start, you know, you have to look on the Heat roster and say, well, who's going to match up with who? So you say that you put Dragic on whoever the shooter is, right? That's going to be either Bellinelli or Redick. And then maybe you put, say, if Tyler Johnson is going to be your starter, maybe you put him on Covington. That means most likely uh, it's going to be Josh Richardson who starts on Simmons. I, I can see James Johnson taking some turns if they want to be more physical with him. But Josh Richardson is going to get a lot of work on him. Justice Winslow is going to get a lot of work on him. And I think the Heat are going to play him pretty much straight up. Because, again, like you said, if you're going to back off of him, you're just giving him more space to make decisions. And it gives him cleaner passing lanes with which to operate. And he is a lot like LeBron in that sense. Like, if you're to look at how you play Simmons, the book on him right now is somewhat similar to the way that you used to play LeBron, right? Like, and LeBron was a better shooter from distance than Simmons is by far, okay? Even though LeBron hadn't refined that part of his game yet. But even when LeBron had become a competent three-point shooter, look at the way that the Spurs played him, right? That was always back off, give LeBron that shot try to take away the lane from him. But the thing that LeBron, when he was on, would do so effectively even in those situations was he would carve you up as a passer because, again, the passing lanes would be so clean for him that he would be able to see the entire floor, the entire half court, and make decisions. So that's the risk you run if you're just going to back a guy off. I think that they're going to start 
most likely Richardson on him, bring in Winslow and try to essentially, you know, just guard him in a tenacious way and not allow him to get a rhythm where he's getting to the rim consistently because that again if you look at his numbers is how he gets most of his points and they've got to worry about these other guys because like I said Bellinelli has been really effective against them and and Sarich has had tremendous numbers against the Heat this year in his four games against the Heat he's shooting 49 percent 45 percent from three on an average of seven attempts a game shooting 94 percent from the line averaging 8.8 rebounds and 3.3 assists I mean he's been He's been deadly against Miami this year. So you don't want to overplay Simmons and allow someone like Sarge to sort of get going against you. you got to be careful with that. Yeah, you look at during the Sixers win streak, which there's a lot of numbers we can mine here. You look at Simmons from an assist point of view, averaging more than 10 assists a game over the 16 games of the win streak, playing 30 minutes a game. So double-digit assists, close to averaging a triple-double, just you know two-tenths of a rebound off of doing that. And then you look at the three-point shooting for the Sixers team. Team, there are, if you include Embiid, who only played eight games of the uh, of the sixteen game win streak that the Sixers closed the season on. If you include Embiid, you have seven guys that are shooting at least three times a game from beyond the arc. Covington and Reddick lead the way, averaging a little under seven a game. Covington at thirty eight and a half percent, Reddick at forty three percent. You have Bellinelli at forty one and a half percent during the win streak. Sarich at 38.5%, Ilyasova at 36%. They have high-volume, high-quality three-point shooting with a playmaker that's going to probe and give them open looks. And then Embiid adds this whole other dynamic. So there's a lot to worry about from a defensive point of view, and I don't think you can tie up your interests in just picking out Simmons' lack of shooting because he can do too much else. I guess the thing, though, is that if you are going to try to hit on a weakness, that would be one of them. The thing is that he has been so good, and that for me is the incredible bit of his rookie season. He's going to win Rookie of the Year without being able to shoot in a league that punishes everyone who can't shoot, and yet somehow the league has not been able to figure it out. We'll see if Spokane. All right, let's now move to point number five that we want to hit on here in our Sixers Heat preview, and that is actually the Sixers from a defensive point of view. I think we talk a lot about Embiid and Ben Simmons and what they've done from an offensive point of view and the players that they're going to become. I mean, think of the, I mean we've seen some of the score lines. They scored 130 tonight against Milwaukee. They scored 132 in their win over Cleveland. They're a potent offensive team, but also, over the course of the entire length of the season, the representative sample size, they're the third best defensive team in the league. And Ethan, I was listening today to Zach Lowe and Kevin Arnovitz running through their their awards, their individual awards for the year. And they were kind of going through first team all defense, second team all defense. They got the defensive player of the year and Zach Lowe is voting Embiid second behind Anthony Davis. But I think it was either him or Arnovitz, I forget. One of them said, I really wanted to put Robert Covington on my ballot. And he ended up being fourth in my list of guys that I ranked as the best defensive players in the league. So if you're basically saying that the Sixers have two of the four best defensive players in the leagues by an arbitrary measurement, by two writers who are well plugged into the NBA, whose opinions I value a lot, but either way, it's kind of arbitrary, but really quality defenders to go with a, a strong team defense, to go with a coach that comes from the Spurs system of quality defense. This is a really good defensive team that has rim protection, that has wings that know what they're doing on, on, on the perimeter as well. Ben Simmons is a really good defender as well as a, as a forward on defense, as a point guard on offense. And I just think from a defensive point of view, with the Sixers having all this offensive firepower, 
that they can drop 130, they can score from all over. The Heat are going to have to try and keep up with them, and yet they're going against a really quality defense too. That, for me, is the part of the matchup that I see the Heat struggling with the most is scoring on a regular basis against this Sixers team. And those two guys you mentioned, that doesn't even include Simmons' length and, and the way that he's played defensively here over the past couple of months. So so you're talking about three elite guys defensively. Covington's one of the best in the league at deflections. I mean, he just seems to get in every passing lane, and that's going to make things challenging for the Heat at times. So you look at the Heat roster, and we've talked more about the Sixers than the Heat on this particular pod because we talk about the Heat so much. But I think you look at the Heat roster and you're saying, okay, who's going to be the guy who's going to carry them? Now, we saw... Tonight against Toronto, and I, it's funny because I said this in the last pod we had with Ira, that I feel like Ellington's going to win them a playoff game. Like there's going to be a game where Wayne's just really hot, okay? Yep. And he's struggled at times of late, but I could still see that happening in this series. But I think you look beyond that. You say, okay, who else on the Heat roster is going to carry you offensively? Can you count on Dwayne to do it for stretches? Can you count on Dragic? to do it for stretches. I mean, Goran has had a couple of disappointing games of late, and I wonder with Goran a little bit, and now he's nicked up coming into the postseason, what we talked about earlier, you know, how much basketball he played this summer, if that starts to catch up with him a little bit here in the postseason, particularly because this team still doesn't have a backup point guard. I mean, they they started Magruder tonight with Tyler Johnson in the backcourt, so I guess ostensibly Tyler was the backup point. You saw James Johnson handling, Justice handled a lot, Dwayne handled a lot, but they still they still rely on, on Goron to handle the ball so much. So does he have enough left at this point to be able to have those kind of streak scoring runs and carry the heat that way? But I think that they're going to need I look at their roster, and I said that Whiteside I thought was the most important player for them in the playoffs because he makes them different if he's engaged. But they're going to need Josh Richardson to play well in this series offensively. It's Again, even if he's guarding Ben Simmons, he's not going to match Ben Simmons point for point, assist for assist or any of that stuff sort of stuff. But he's got to be... He's got to be aggressive offensively because when you just look at the efficiency numbers for Josh, they're better than a lot of the other guys on this team. I think sometimes he just doesn't he's just not aggressive enough offensively or they don't feature him enough offensively. And I think there's going to need to be some stretches during the series where they do that and he's going to have to come up big for them. And he's going to have to look more like the Josh Richardson we saw in December where he put up close to 18 points a game, shooting 50% or 54% from the field in that month than the Josh Richardson we've seen lately where it seems like one out of every three games you get that guy, but you don't get him for the other two. The other guy who could be a factor in the series because he's just gained so much confidence lately, Chris, is Winslow has played much better offensively of late, and even tonight was better around the rim than he's been. And we can talk about how teams might try to scheme him in the playoffs and treat him like Tony Allen but he ended up shooting, what, 40% from three this season, right? I mean, I know it's stunning because I know a lot of Heat fans still don't believe that. But it looks to me, just in the way that Spolster has used him lately, like he wants to play justice more. Like he wants him on the floor for the other things that he does. And so there's going to be opportunities for justice to be a factor offensively as well. And can he give them stretches? I don't think you're going to see any Heat player score 25-plus in a game during this series, but can they get three or four guys going at the same time where it's difficult for Philadelphia to scheme for them as good as the Sixers are defensively. And you have enough guys from the heat who are contributing. Cause I just, I look at their roster and I just don't see one guy again, other than maybe Wayne stealing a game for them. One guy who's going to be able to carry them. Winslow, by the way, ended up on 38% from three, 
49 of 129, so not a ton of volume, but did end up with a solid percentage. I guess the question is, when it comes down to it, less than five minutes to play, if he's out there and he has an open one, does he take it and does he make it? And that, for me, is kind of what this series will end up boiling down to. We didn't really get into how the, the how some of the Heat players can be schemed out of the series, but there's some danger in some of their non-shooting lineups as well. All right, Ethan, let's go ahead and close here on this point. Let's get your prediction on the record. How do you think the series goes? I think it goes six. I think the Heat can push it to six. You know, I know that would, again, mean that the Heat would lose on their home floor to lose a series. That's a tall order for a young team like Philadelphia to close out a series on the road. But I do think that Miami can get a couple games in this series again. If they get an engaged white side, they get a game from Ellington that's something close to what we saw tonight. And if they can have a moment from Wade at the end of one of those games to close out, I, I think they can get... A couple of these, especially with Embiid's situation where we don't know if he's going to be a little bit rusty when he comes back, and especially with Spolstra's advantage, at least from an experience standpoint in the playoffs against Brett Brown, even though Brett Brown was an assistant on those Spurs teams. I'm going to say it goes six, but I I come back to this. I, I just think ultimately talent does win out, and I think what we've talked about all year, that the Heat don't have that one guy. Philadelphia appears to have two. I think ultimately that'll be too much for the Heat in this series. Yep, I'm uh, I'm getting roasted for it as we speak on the Twitter machine. I think it'll be Sixers in five games. I think Miami gets one of the games here at home, but I just think that they have too much. They're playing too well, and I just don't see what is the matchup advantage that Miami has in the series. To me, the way that Miami was always going to win a playoff series, if they were going to do so, was being so good on defense that their lackluster offense, which ended up finishing 20th in the league in offensive efficiency, which, you know, it's a bottom third of the league offense. I mean, maybe just outside of that. 20th is not good. And you look at what the Sixers team has, they're good on offense. If you look at kind of over their last 41 games of the season were the sixth best offense, a little over 110 points per 100 possessions. And then the fact that they're so good on defense, right? Miami doesn't even have the defense advantage in this series when you look at the overall defensive rating for the season. So they don't have anything that I can see right now that they're better than the Sixers at a position, a particular skill set, whether it's three-point shooting or defense or something where I could say, all right, this is the Heat's path to a series victory. I don't know what it is. I don't know what the Heat's path to a series victory is. And I always do this to myself. I should have just said Heat in five and drawn the applause of all the fans, but I don't see it. I think I think this is a quick exit for Miami. And I think if, if it is, you know, I think there's going to be some soul searching this offseason. And if there wasn't already in the front office of just, OK, what is the path forward? Can you get how do you get a star? I know that's what Riley's always thinking about. But what the Heat have is a really nice roster with a lot of B minus to B plus players on it. And there's nothing wrong with that. That was enough to make the playoffs and to end up with a six seed in an Eastern conference that was, you know, reasonably competitive this year. There were actually more teams in the East that won 50 plus games than there were in the West. I think four to two in terms of that. So look, the Eastern conference was not awful this year. The heat make the playoffs. They finished sixth to a certain degree. They sort of validated what they did in the second half of last season. Didn't play at that level, but at least they were able to follow up and they did lose Dion waiters who was supposed to be. And I know he didn't play well earlier this season, but he was supposed to be a starter for them and they're 
go-to guy down the stretch. So I give the Heat credit for making the playoffs. They unearthed a player in Adebayo who looks like he can be part of the future. Josh Richardson made strides. Winslow was better late in the year. Wade's a nice story. Dragic played well. Whiteside had some moments. But ultimately, you know, when you look at their roster and you look at Philadelphia, you just see a team that's sort of building into a, a potential juggernaut down the road. And I just think this is a situation where talent wins out. So we'll see. I you Look, I hope not. The longer that the Heat go, not only is it fun to watch, it's better for us. I mean, we, we, yeah. we want to do more podcasts on the Heat playoffs. So I hope they make it a long series and I hope they pull it out. But just on the surface, I agree with you. There's just nothing I can sort of cling to that says Miami's definitely better at that. They're going to need a lot of guys to play over the level that they played at this season. Maybe an Olenek surprises us. Maybe Josh Richardson plays huge. Maybe Justice's growth curve really accelerates the sort of the way we've seen it the second half of this season. But it is hard to see for me right now a clear path to victory for them. All right, that'll do it for this edition of the Heat Sixers playoff preview. The other thing we should mention, Ethan, is that we are going to do a podcast after each and every game of the postseason that the Heat play in. So whether it's out you know, the, the night of or the morning after, we'll be recapping every single game that the Heat play in. So we are definitely looking forward to this playoff run. And I'll just gonna I'm just gonna start drowning in more sadness on my Twitter mentions, Ethan. I'm just <laughs> it's been bad. I've checked it like once every twenty minutes during this pod and I, I don't I don't like where I'm at right now. I'm gonna have to do some rethinking of my, my place in life at the moment. Well, if you go back and edit this thing and throw heat in four in there, I'll know what happens. So there you go. <laughs> Blatantly pandering to the audience. All right, that'll do it for this edition. Subscribe on iTunes or on Google Play. Thanks for listening to the Five Reasons Podcast. 